Father, we do thank you that our salvation was accomplished at Calvary, that the work that Jesus came to accomplish was finished upon that cross. There is no more debt that needs to be paid. He paid it all when he spilled his precious blood and he died in our place. Father, we thank you that because of his resurrection, we know that you accepted his payment that he made. We know that uh, what he offered in himself on that cross was, was able to purchase our pardon, to purchase our salvation forever to the uttermost. Lord, we thank you for what our Savior has done for us, and we pray that you would grow us in our love for him and our devotion to him and in our desire to see others come to know him. I pray that through your word you would accomplish that within us. May we see our, more of our Savior, and may we love him more uh, because of what we see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." As we read in our call to worship this morning in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul tells us, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The world that we live in today is saturated with errors and wrong beliefs and distorted world views. Because we live in it, we often will swallow error without even knowing it. We just assume that that is the way things are because we've never known differently and we never have been taught any differently. Even when we become Christians, when our worldview is completely turned upside down and we finally begin to see things the way God wants us to see them, there can still be stubborn holdovers from our old way of thinking. And wrong beliefs can continue to try and worm their way in to our hearts subtly without our notice of it. And this seems to have happened to the Corinthians. And we've already seen in this letter to the church at Corinth how they've already begun to subscribe to a worldly type of wisdom a wisdom that says, get what you can out of this world, exalt yourself over others. They've subscribed to that kind of wisdom rather than to the wisdom of the cross. We've already seen the values of the world permeate their hearts and their minds. But it appears that they were also allowing pagan theology to seep into their understanding. The city of Corinth was, Corinth was situated in the Greco-Roman world. And it's apparent that one of the many differences between the theologies of Greek paganism and the theology of the Christian faith was the doctrine of the resurrection. Remember Acts 17 when Paul came to Athens. And, and remember what the hobby of the Athenians was. What did they like to do? They liked to philosophize to one another and hear any kind of new teaching that there was. 
And so they invited Paul to come and to share his new teaching that they'd never heard before. And so he was teaching them, he was proclaiming the gospel to them. And up until he mentioned the resurrection, they were content to listen to him. But once he mentioned the resurrection of Christ, they scoffed at him and they wrote him off. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. And we can ask, why is Paul bringing this up to them? Well, Paul tells us why in verse 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the problem. There are some individuals within the Corinthian congregation who were denying the resurrection of the dead. And that could be because they were still subscribing to holdovers of the worldview of the Greek paganism which they were saved out of. Now, it's important to note they were apparently not denying that Jesus rose from the dead. They were just denying that his people would be raised from the dead. From how Paul will argue throughout the rest of this chapter, it seems clear that nobody was denying Christ's resurrection. He's not fighting against that kind of error. He's fighting against those who are denying, the, in general terms, the resurrection of Christ's people. This wrong teaching, denying the resurrection of Christ's people, had devastating in, implications for the teaching of the resurrection of Christ himself. And that's what the Corinthians didn't realize. They didn't realize that this kind of error would eventually lead to a denial of the resurrection of Christ himself. If you deny that Christ's people cannot expect to be raised from the dead, you're only a couple steps away from denying that Christ himself rose from the dead. So this idea that Christ's people will not be raised from the dead. It wasn't some little side doctrine that Paul could be content to allow disagreement over. No, this is something that, that needs to be corrected, and so he writes to do that. The gospel is at stake here. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the proclamation and response of the gospel in the first two verses. We're going to see the content of the gospel in verses 3 to 7. And then we're going to see the effects of the gospel in verses 8 to 11. The gospel is foundational to our worldview as believers. And because of that, it is imperative that we have a firm hold on the gospel because that, above all else, will shape how we see the world around us. We are saved by this gospel. So if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. So let's look at the first two verses. Here we see the gospel proclamation and response. Verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Right there we find that thankfully, these Corinthians still believe in the gospel. They still believe in the gospel. But we'll see later on in this chapter that there are beliefs they are flirting with that are downstream from the truth of the gospel. And those little waverings and those beliefs that flow out of the gospel need to get shored up. It's like an unskilled contractor who has built a level and square foundation but as he builds on that foundation, he neglects to make sure what he's building remains level and square. So he builds that first floor, and he doesn't realize that it's out of kilter. And so when he goes to put the second floor on, he realizes what? This structure is no longer safe. And so what does he have to do? He's got to tear everything down to the foundation and start all over. That's what Paul is doing in this chapter. The foundation is good, but certain beliefs that they are 
flirting with that are being built on that foundation are not good. They're out of sorts. And so Paul is bringing them all the way back to the foundation of the gospel. And in this chapter, he's going to seek to build from there. But he has to start with the gospel. When Paul says in verse 1, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, he's not saying that they've never heard this before. He's not even saying that they've completely forgotten it because he'll go on to say that this gospel he's declaring to them is the gospel which, verse 1, I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. So Paul, he's, he's already preached this gospel to them. They've already received this gospel, and they're still standing on this gospel. But the winds of false doctrine are threatening to blow them off of that foundation. So Paul is going to make known to them again the gospel. And that's something we need to constantly be doing for one another and ourselves, isn't it? We need to constantly be preaching the gospel to each other and to ourselves. We tend to think that the gospel message is only for unbelievers. But it's not like when I'm lost and I hear the gospel and I come to salvation that I just take that gospel and I just set it aside because I don't need it anymore. No, the gospel is for believers as well. It is the very thing that continues to cause us to grow in Christ. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. And the Apostle Peter was another individual who, who understood this. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. He understood the need to be reminded about the truth. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, speaking of his physical body, to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So Peter understood we need to be reminded of the truth continually. And why is that? It's because the evil one is constantly trying to pollute our understanding of the truth in order to make us fall from our steadfastness. In that same letter of Peter's in chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter warns his readers against those who seek to distort the scriptures. They seek to distort the word of God. And because of that, in verse 17, Peter says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that is, knowing that there's individuals out there who will seek to distort what the Word of God says. Therefore, beloved, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the very concern that the Apostle Paul has. If we come back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 2, he voices that concern. In verse 2, in reference to the gospel that he's reminding them of, he qualifies his statement that they are saved by this gospel with two qualifications, two conditional statements. The first conditional statement is when he says in verse 2, by which you are saved, referring to the gospel, if... You hold fast the word which I preach to you. There Peter or Paul is warning these believers that if they do not persevere in their faith in the gospel, they will not be saved. They will not be saved. This is the exact same kind of warning that we saw in what other book? Repeatedly, in what other book? Anybody remember? starts with an H and it rhymes with Rebrews. 
Hebrews. We went over that how many times? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I forget things often myself. But if you were to read it again, you'll see that this is the exact same kind of warning that you see repeatedly in that letter. The preacher to the Hebrew congregation says, you have to keep believing. If you do not keep believing, you will face the wrath of God. Now, is Paul and that preacher to the Hebrews, are they saying that believers can and do lose their salvation? As I argued in Hebrews when we went through that book, no. No, he's not saying that. But he is warning us that the loss of our salvation will be the result if we stop believing in Jesus Christ. Now, how does that fit? How does that warning fit in with the repeated promises of Scripture that true believers cannot lose their salvation? Well, as we saw in Hebrews, warnings like this one are a means that God uses to make sure we do not stop persevering in our faith. A true believer, when he reads chapter 15, verse 2, a true believer responds to that warning by saying, yikes, I do not want that to happen, so I am going to fix my eyes on Jesus Christ ever more firmly as my Lord and Savior. These warnings spur us on. They stimulate our faith and ensure that no believer will fall into what is being warned of. Warnings like this are a fulfillment of a new covenant promise. And we read that promise in Jeremiah 32, verse 40. What was the problem with the old covenant? The old covenant, the problem with that was that the people did turn away from God. They did fall away. They fell out of the covenant. The whole point of the new covenant is to fix that problem. And Jeremiah 32, 40 gives a new covenant promise that fixes that problem when God says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And one of the ways God does that is through these kinds of warnings. Back in chapter 15, verse 2, Paul gives the second conditional statement. The Corinthians are saved by this gospel unless you believed in vain, Paul says. They're being saved by the gospel Paul preached and that they believed and that they are standing on unless they believed in vain. Now, what would make their belief in the gospel vain or empty or to no purpose, no result? Well, remember what some are teaching in verse 12, that there is no resurrection of the dead. If what they are teaching is true, what does that imply about this gospel that we've believed in? Well, look at verse 13. Paul asks in verse 12, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, he spells out the implications of that. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what? Vain. And your faith also is what? Vain. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So back to verse 2, when Paul says, unless you believed in vain, he's making the, this point. If it is true that Christ's people will not be raised from the dead then the gospel that Paul has been preaching this whole time, the gospel they've received, and the gospel that they are standing on will not be able to save them. If it is true that Christ's people will not be raised from the dead, then the Corinthians have believed in vain. They've believed a gospel that holds no hope for them. They're still dead in their sins and on their way to hell. So he's confronting them with the problem of this false teaching that is being presented to them. This tells us that you and I need to pay very close attention to what we are believing and why we are believing it. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is not just for the ivory tower theologian up in his little room. You may not realize it, but what you believe about some things 
will necessarily impact what you believe about other things. That's because the truths of Scripture are interconnected and they have implications for one another. For example, if you deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, if you deny that, what do you deny? You deny the incarnation. You end up saying that Jesus was only a man. Now, if Jesus was only a man, then he was also what? A sinner. If Jesus is a sinner, just like you and me, then he could never have redeemed us, and we are still doomed. Another example is what you believe about creation. If you deny that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, and you instead believe that he used some kind of evolutionary process to bring about creation, then you are saying that death was a part of God's good creation. You are denying that death came about solely as a punishment for man's sin. And if that is true, that sin is not what brings death, then why is sin a big deal? And why did Jesus have to die to rescue us from sin? If death is not the penalty for sin, how did the death of Jesus accomplish anything for our salvation? You see how what we believe about one thing can knock the legs out from the foundation of the gospel that we believe in. As you and I go through life, we are constantly bombarded with our culture's worldview, and we inadvertently begin picking up these subtle little errors in our beliefs. Our belief in the gospel is still intact, but we allow these little contagions of error to infect our faith, and those errors, over time, begin to work to undermine our faith in the gospel by which we're saved. That's just a reality. And if that's the reality, then we need to make sure that we are constantly allowing the Word of God to wash our hearts and our minds. The Word of God is the antibiotic that rids our faith of those infectious errors that infiltrate our worldview. If we're not in this book, if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, if we're not gathering together and reminding each other of the truths of the gospel daily, those errors begin to build up. And over time, they begin to threaten the very foundation upon which our salvation rests, which is the gospel. So it matters what we believe. So Paul talks about the gospel he proclaimed and that they received. But what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. What is the good news? What did Paul preach when he came to Corinth? Well, we find this in verses 3 through 7. Look at what Paul says there. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. When Paul came to the city of Corinth for the first time on his missionary journey, what was the most important thing he had to tell them? It was the gospel. In fact, it was so important that in chapter 2 and verse 2, we saw Paul say, For I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like he emptied his mind of everything else because all that mattered for him to tell them was that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That is what they needed to hear. And if they didn't hear that, it didn't matter what else they heard because it would still leave them dead in their sins. There are two basic elements that make up the simple and saving message of the gospel. 
Two basic elements. Now, there's much more true and good that you could say about the gospel, building on those two elements, but you cannot go less than those two elements and still have the gospel. There are two irreducible things that the gospel boils down to that you must have in order for it to still be the gospel. And the first element that makes up the gospel is what we see in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins that you and I deserve to pay. The death that you and I earned by our crimes against God by breaking his law was the very death that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Jesus died in our place. That is, he died so that you and I could escape death and live. Jesus suffered the almighty wrath of God, absorbing it completely upon himself on the cross so that we would be delivered from having to experience any of his wrath. Jesus endured the hell of God's wrath on the cross for us. Now, is this first element of the gospel something that Paul dreamed up so that he could start his own little cult? No, verse 3, he says that he received this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He received this. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Paul testifies about his reception of this gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This wasn't some man-made message that he was proclaiming. It was Christ's message through him. Not only that, but we see in verse 3 of chapter 15 that this gospel message had already been foretold and proclaimed where? In the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 where we see this gospel message proclaimed and this, in particular, this first element that Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. And as I read through these nine verses, try to notice how many times Isaiah says that the Messiah did something for us or in our place. Verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, that he was executed for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, 
nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Paul goes on in verse 4 of chapter 15 to say that part of his gospel proclamation was that he was buried. That he was buried. This point of Paul's gospel proclamation supports what he said in verse 3. This is a supporting point of that first element of the gospel. Jesus was buried. Showing what? That his death was not a metaphorical death, it was a real death. Thus he received a real burial. And neither was the pronouncement of his death a mistake. You know, the Roman executioners, they were not novices at killing people. They were good at it. They scourged Jesus to the point of death. They used a several-stranded whip with bits of metal and sharp bone on the ends to rip the flesh off his body. And that alone was enough to kill people, and if not kill them, put them in a state of shock due to the blood loss. Then they nailed him on a cross, driving nails through his hands and his feet, And then after hanging on that cross for several hours, suffocating because of the position that they nailed him in, he yielded up his spirit and he died. And a Roman soldier, just to make sure that Jesus was really dead, took a spear and jammed it up into his side, piercing him through, causing blood and water to flow. And then Joseph of Arimathea, And Nicodemus wrapped his body in linen and they anointed his body with a hundred pounds of spices and they laid him in Joseph's tomb. And then a great stone was rolled across the entrance and it was sealed. Jesus died. He really died and he was buried and it was for our sins. That brings us to the second element of the gospel. And this second element, that is the element that is being threatened by the false teaching that is being propagated in Corinth. In verse 4, Paul goes on to say that his gospel message included this fact, that he was raised raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day. Jesus lay dead in that tomb through the rest of Friday, all of Saturday, on into Sunday, but early Sunday morning, the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked out of that tomb. That sounds unbelievable, right? And it is. Jesus' own disciples could not believe it. They were not expecting it, even though on multiple occasions, Jesus told them that that's what was going to happen before the fact. And even when they saw Jesus with their own eyes and felt him with their own hands, they still struggled to believe it. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 and verse 40, it says that the resurrected Christ showed them his hands and his feet. He allowed them to to handle him. But verse 1 immediately after says, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. It is unbelievable. That's why it's so important in verse 4 that Paul adds the phrase, according to the scriptures. Though we may not be able to believe our own senses of sight and touch, we can believe what? The word of God. Let me continue reading Isaiah 53 to you, the last three verses, where we see the resurrection foretold. Isaiah 53, verse 10, says that, speaking of the Messiah, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Dead men don't get to see those who come after their death. Resurrected men do. He will prolong his days. Dead men don't have days to live out. A resurrected man does. 
and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see something an alive man can do and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. A dead man can't do that. A resurrected man can, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Another one you could go to is Psalm 16, verse 10, where David, speaking of his descendant to come, who would be the Messiah, said that God would not allow him to see decay. Well, David is dead and buried, and his body has long since decayed to dust. He was speaking not of himself, but of the Messiah, his coming descendant. So this fact of the resurrection of the Messiah was foretold several centuries before Jesus came. In verses 5 through 7, which I read, Paul gives more of the content of his message that he preached to the Corinthians when he proclaimed the gospel to them. And this content was in support of that second element, that Jesus rose from the dead. In support of that, Paul rehearsed in chronological order individuals whom the resurrected Jesus appeared to. In verse 5, he mentions Jesus appearing to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. After that, he mentions how the twelve saw Jesus. The twelve came to be a collective name for the group of twelve disciples that Jesus called to follow him during his ministry. After that, Paul speaks of Jesus appearing to over 500 disciples on one occasion. This may have been when Jesus met with his disciples in Galilee. He had, before his death, he had told his disciples, hey, meet me in Galilee. And then after his resurrection, he said, meet me in Galilee. And so he met with his disciples there, and likely a whole bunch of them went. And it was there that he commissioned them to spread the gospel around the world. Jesus also appeared to James. Now, we know of more than one James in Scripture, but this is probably that James, the brother of Jesus. And then Jesus appeared to all the apostles, verse 7. That could be another reference to the twelve, Jesus appearing to them at a later date than the one mentioned in verse 5. Or it could be a more general use of the term apostles. For example, Barnabas was called an apostle. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he proved it by presenting himself as alive to hundreds of eyewitnesses, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. So the Corinthians, if they were so inclined, could go and follow up and check out Paul's story. They had hundreds of witnesses they could interview to confirm what had happened. The resurrection of Christ is one of the, if not the, most well-attested event in ancient history. In reference to the apostles that Jesus showed himself to, Luke says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He says, To these Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So this was the message that Paul preached to them, the good news. And this is the good news that you and I if we are trusting in Christ, this is the good news we have received. This is the good news that we are standing on. This is the good news by which we are saved if we hold fast to it. And finally, that brings us to the gospel effects. The effect of the gospel on a person who believes it in verses 8 through 11. Paul, he's been describing who Christ appeared to in chronological order. Well, in verse 8, he gets to himself. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul was the last apostle to whom the resurrected Jesus appeared. 
There are no more apostles because Paul was the last. He was the last. And Paul refers to himself as one who, is, who was untimely born. The word for untimely born was a word used for children who had been aborted or miscarried or stillborn. You can see this if you want to write these passages down. Numbers 12.12, 12, Job 3.16, Ecclesiastes 6.3. The Bible of the New Testament believer was the Greek Septuagint. It was the Old Testament translated in Greek. And this word for untimely born is the word used in those three passages. And they all speak of a miscarried child. Paul says that Jesus appeared to him, to Paul, as to a dead child. What does he mean by that? Well, the other disciples in Paul's list were believers. We're not sure about James. We don't know if he came to faith before the Lord appeared to him or because the Lord appeared to him. But all the other disciples were believers when the Lord appeared to them. Yeah, they may have been doubting like Thomas, but they were followers of Christ. They were spiritually alive. That was not the case with Paul. When Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul had a violent hatred for Jesus. Paul was still dead in his sins when the resurrected Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. When Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul was on his way to imprison Christians. In verse 9 of chapter 15, Paul continues to elaborate on why he considered himself to be as a dead child when the Lord appeared to him. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now we are all sinners. We all deserve hell, not heaven. Before we come to know Christ, we are all depraved. That means that there is not a single part of us that is left untouched or untwisted by sin. And though that is the case, we are all not as bad as we could be. What do I mean by that? Though we all have the sinful capacity to be the worst of the worst, God's gracious restraining hand often kept us from fully manifesting our sin to the degree that we could have manifested it. Each one of us can look back on our lives before we were believers and thank God for how he kept us from some things that we otherwise would have fallen into. And the only reason that we did not fall into those things is because of the kind providence of God not letting us go there. But for some individuals, God in his inscrutable wisdom does not restrain them so much. And they give full vent to their sinful depravity. And that was the case with the Apostle Paul. Paul persecuted Christians. Paul tried to exterminate an entire class of people. Paul was the one standing by in approval, watching over the cloaks that the Jews had laid aside so that they could have a better range of motion to hurl stones at the head of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, after the stoning of Stephen, it is said of Paul that he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. And when Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul was headed to Damascus in order to hunt down more Christians. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. Luke gives us a biographical note about Paul, also known as Saul. In that day, people often had two names, especially Jews. They had a Greek name and a Jewish name. His Greek name was Paul, but his Jewish name was Saul. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, another name for believers of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man is obsessed with ridding the world of Christians. This is who Paul was when Jesus appeared to him. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, the other apostles, they had their sinful flaws, certainly, but they didn't try to exterminate Jesus' own blood-bought people. That is why Paul says back in chapter 15, verse 9, I am not fit to be called an apostle. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Jesus had come to Paul as one comes to a miscarried child lying dead in the dirt. And what did Jesus do to Paul? The resurrected Christ made Paul alive. He brought him to repentant faith. Jesus credited his own righteousness to the account of Paul. Jesus washed him in his atoning blood, cleansing him and forgiving him. Jesus put his Holy Spirit inside of Paul, and he called Paul to be a witness for himself among the Gentiles. The grace of God flooded into the life of Paul bringing life where there was only death before. And Paul, instead of spending himself trying to kill the church, from that point on, for the rest of his life, he would spend himself for the church, serving the church, making known Jesus Christ, the one he had hated. And he did it to the degree that he outworked all the other apostles. But Paul never forgot that he owed all of his labors and all of the fruit of his labors to the grace of God alone. Paul never forgot who he was, and he never forgot who he still would be if not for the grace of God. We see that not only do the scriptures prove the resurrection, the scriptures prove the resurrection, not only do the eyewitness accounts of the apostles prove the resurrection, but the transformed life of the murderer, Paul, proves the resurrection. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul's testimony about himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He's not just saying that to be humble. This is the man who tried to exterminate Christians. When he says, I am the chief of sinners, he means that. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying that if Jesus would save him, the chief of sinners, 
the one who was trying to kill and imprison Jesus' beloved people, if Jesus would save him, then Jesus will save anyone who comes to him. That is what the gospel does to people. It transforms them from the inside out. The gospel is true. Only a resurrected Christ can transform someone like that. Only a resurrected Christ can bring the spiritually dead to life and cause them to do a 180 like what happened to Paul. People do not change like that on their own strength. You don't go from wanting to kill Christ's people to being eager and willing to die for Christ's people just because you woke up on the other side of the bed one morning. The grace of God alone, from the resurrected Christ alone, does that. Verse 11, Paul says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This was the gospel that Paul and all the other apostles preached. They, say, they preached the same message. There wasn't several different gospels that they were all preaching. No, they received the same gospel from the one resurrected Lord Jesus, and they all preached that exa- the exact same message. And the power of the gospel was not in the one who preached it. The power of the gospel was in the one who was preached, Jesus Christ. This was the message the Corinthians had received. This was the message by which they were being saved. There's only one gospel. There's only one message that saves. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. If you truly believe in this message, if you have truly turned from your sins and are trusting in Jesus alone to save you and rule you, And if you take your stand on this gospel, then you are being saved by this gospel if you hold it fast. Don't allow error to creep in and weaken the foundation of the only thing that can save you. As Paul said to Timothy, keep a close eye on your life and your doctrine. Keep a close eye on that. Let's pray.